So, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to John's Gospel, I'm going to be reading from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. But if you have a Bible, do keep it with you because we will be opening um, the Bible a little bit later on in the message as well. So, John 12, 12 to 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord, we look at a passage where there is a stark contrast between praise and suspicion, and jealousy. And Lord, I just want to pray that as we open your word, that you will make us obedient to what it is you call us to be. Lord, if today we have said yes to you, I want to pray that that yes will resonate deeply in our hearts. So just encourage us and inspire us from your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Any guesses? Who's this man? That was the response I was hoping for. (laughs) Utter blankness. I had no idea who this man was at all either until this week. And I still have no real idea who he is other than this is his name. Charles-Marie Gustave Le Bon. Anyone got any ideas who he is now? No students of 19th century French literature in the room? No, surprisingly not. Well, this man, this man, very interestingly, was one of the first people to write about crowds. He was the first person to look at a crowd and say, why do crowds behave differently than individuals? Later people like Freud, who you've probably heard of, did the same kind of thing. And he started to realize that when you're in a crowd, you behave very differently to when you're on on your own. When you're in a crowd, it's easy to say yes, isn't it? It's easy to get drawn in by that sense of energy that a crowd has. And he went around sort of saying that that people then on their own found it difficult to do the same thing that they were doing in a crowd. So now you know, Gustave Le Bon, you can read all about him. Now the Palm Sunday readings, they are well known, aren't they? They're ones that we read every year. I was trying to work out how many times I preached on Palm Sunday and I lost count because there are so many times, it appears in all four Gospels, it's really well known. We read these passages every year. Now John's Gospel is the briefest in terms of its account of um, the Palm Sunday events. There is no detail about the donkey other than it's there, so perhaps that's why I got that question. I'm just making excuses here, aren't I? And what John does is he paints with broad brushstrokes. He's not interested so much in the detail as the significance. His interest is more in the theology of what's going on and the fulfilled prophecy of what is taking place. Now, this morning, I don't want us just to stay on Palm Sunday, but I want to take us on a bit of a journey from the events of Palm Sunday 
right through what we perhaps call Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter, to the events where Peter denies Jesus. And to look at the difference between how we behave when we're part of the crowd, when everyone is cheering Jesus, and how we behave when we're in the crunch time. For Peter, it was by a fire, warming himself. All of us face crunch times as Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus today, there'll be times in your life when your faith is put under pressure, and you'll be on your own, and you have to decide, is my yes for Jesus still relevant here, as it was on Sunday when it was easy to sing? Is my yes to Jesus still going to hold when perhaps private temptation comes in or something else comes in or we're at work and somebody asks us a difficult question? Is it going to hold there as much as it did perhaps when I was at New Wine or Spring Harvest with the crowd singing praises to God? So let's have a look at the crowd and Passover. Passover is the festival that everyone's coming to Jerusalem for. Passover is where the Jews celebrated the exodus, um, that great sense of liberation coming out of Egypt under Moses. And it was a big, big festival. Now, Jerusalem was quite a big city by ancient standards. Between 50 and 100,000 people lived there. Historians can never agree. Um, but it's that kind of size. During Passover time, the numbers would be swelled to between 200 and 300,000. Now, if you want a bit of context, that's bigger than Warrington. That's more people than live in the whole of Warrington Borough. But crammed into an area about the size of a square mile, that's smaller than Lim. All right? So you get the sense of how busy and packed Jerusalem would have been. It's getting warm. It's noisy. It's um, people sleeping on the floors of relatives, people in guest rooms. Literally, the place would have a buzz about it. And when John says in verse 12 that a great crowd was there, he really means it. 100,000 people, 200,000 people, whatever measurement you use, that is a great crowd. Anyone ever been in a crowd that big, 200,000 people? Mike has. Where were you? Fantastic. What was it like? Mad. Mad. There we go. That's the kind of imagery we get as to going on here. You know, hundreds of thousands of people. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Now, he has become famous because John, in the previous chapter, tells us that Lazarus has been risen from the dead. And that is not a normal event, is it? Dead people do not come out of tombs. We don't experience that on a day-to-day basis. People didn't experience that in the first century either. This is highly unusual. And so people are going around saying, who is this Jesus? Who is he? And so rather than write down some nice, neat answer, they enact it by what they do. And so palm branches are brought. These are symbols of victory and triumph. Interesting, though, why on earth did they have palm branches? Why were they there? Well, it actually shows that at least a few people have started to think very carefully about the response to Jesus. Palm branches weren't used at Passover. They were used at the Feast of the Tabernacles, but that's not till the autumn, and I don't think anybody does that much forward planning. So they came with palm branches, which were also not really readily available in Jerusalem. You had to go to Jericho, where the date palms were, to get your palm branches, 15 miles away, quite a long walk. So there is a sense that this is not just spontaneous. People are starting to think, what is the right reaction to this Jesus who is riding into Jerusalem? How do we welcome this man who is coming in? And there is a blueprint as well in relatively recent Jewish history. Because 150 years previously, 
during what's called the Maccabean Revolt, where Judas Maccabeus, Simon Maccabeus, Jonathan Maccabeus, they all defeated what was then the Greek Empire around the time and set up an independent Jewish state. What did they do? They did exactly what happens to Jesus here. Do you want to hear a verse from the Apocrypha? We don't often refer to the Apocrypha, but here we go. Simon entered Jerusalem with a chorus of praise and waving of palm branches. 1 Maccabeus 1351. That's a first for me. I don't think I've ever quoted the Apocrypha in a sermon before, but there you go. So that's what was happening. That was in the background. That's what people were thinking about. This was the right way to welcome somebody who you thought might be the Messiah. This was all the fulfillment of prophecy right through the Old Testament. And people had some sense of how to greet Jesus. And they have the Psalm 118 ringing out in praise. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is truth. It's a hope. It's relevant to the people then, it's relevant to us now, and it will be relevant when Jesus comes in great glory. There's almost a three-part fulfillment to these words here. And these words have been used in Christian worship week by week by week for 17, 1800 years. If you've ever been to a liturgical communion service, you will recognize these words. They are words that are said time and time again. So the crowd, this enormous crowd, they are waving palm branches. Jesus is coming in. And it's easy to be part of a crowd. It's easy to be part of a crowd. Anyone been in a crowd when a Mexican wave starts? I was in one the other week at Wembley. And the Mexican wave starts and it goes all around the stadium. It's easy to join in. Anyone tried doing a Mexican wave on their own? It's a bit of a disappointing experience. You just stand up and sit down. Um, But a Mexican wave is something you can do in a crowd. You join in the energy of the crowd. And it's almost like this praise ripples round like the kind of Mexican wave. It's all prophetic, it's all true, it's all right, and if you're there, it's all relatively safe and relatively easy to join in. Now, there's all kinds of other things we could say about the crowd. There is probably a huge mismatch in what they think Messiah could have meant and what Jesus actually came to do. Nobody expected Jesus to be crucified. That wasn't on the agenda, but we won't go down that road for today. But the point I want to make, really, from this crowd is that it was easy for them. It was easy with a hero coming in. And don't get sidetracked by the donkey either. I feel I I shouldn't talk about this donkey. But this donkey, um, it's a sign of royalty, actually. The donkey is a peaceable sign of royalty. The humility that Jesus shows as well in this passage is he doesn't come in with an army. There's no weapons. There's no war. There's no spoils of war. When Simon Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem 150 years before, he had a big army with him. All these spoils of war, Jesus doesn't do that. The kingdom of God is something very different. But I don't know if you noticed in that reading in verse 16, the disciples didn't know what was going on, didn't know what to make of it. What is all, what is all this about? What is happening? They only realized after Jesus was glorified. You know, sometimes in our lives, things happen and we have no idea what God is doing. And we start asking those questions, Lord, what are you doing? And sometimes we can't see those things until later on. So I just want to ask a reflection at that point. Is there anything in your life at the moment where it's hard to see what God is doing? Hard to see. Will you trust him through that? Will you trust that actually he knows what he's doing, even if we actually don't know what he's doing at the time? Well, these verses end, and the Pharisees realize that the way that things are going, it's getting them nowhere. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And so their tactics start to change, and things spiral very quickly. The pace quickens, and over the week that lies ahead, Jesus is tried on made-up charges. 
the triumphal entrance of Palm Sunday very quickly turns into the desolation of Calvary, where Jesus, the Son of God, is on the cross for my sin, for your sin, taking our place, dying for that which we should be dying for, taking the punishment that should have been ours, defeating sin and death. But let's come back to that crowd-based faith, how easy it is to be part of the bigger group and sing our praise. You know, over the last 60, 70 years, um, the UK has changed significantly in terms of the number of people going to church, the number of people who profess Christian faith. If you were to go back 60, 70 years, it was normal to be a Christian in this country. The church holds enormous amount of influence over society, both the Church of England, our own denomination, the Methodist Church, all kinds of different denominations. There was a significant amount of influence. To be a Christian now means to swim against the flow. To be a Christian is to say, I believe something is true that most people don't believe is true. It's to say, actually, that I will stand up for Jesus even when the vast majority of people are no longer believing in him. But you see, there's still quite a lot of us, isn't there? Just look around this morning. You know, it's relatively easy this morning with 150 people in the building, whatever number we are, to sing praise out to God, to say how great is our God. That becomes more difficult the smaller that number becomes. But still... In a reasonable-sized crowd, it's relatively easy. Well, as the events of the week unfold, as Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter, keeps going, the crowds start to disperse. Jesus carries on teaching and preaching. He's with his disciples. They share the Passover. Um, In chapter 11 of John's Gospel, Jesus will predict that he will have to die. And um, then as we go forward, I just want to think a little bit about Peter. I mentioned that at the start. Peter is portrayed by the gospel writers as being headstrong, being the one who always has an answer. You know, if you're a school teacher, you'll recognize this. The kid who always puts the hand up in class even if they don't know the answer. They just want to have a go at getting something right. You may have been that kid in school, but you'll certainly have known the kid who was. Um, That's the kind of person that Peter is, the person who is always there with the answer. By chapter 13 of John's Gospel, Jesus is saying, Peter, you will deny me. You'll turn your back on me when the pressure gets too much. But in chapter 13, verse 37, Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. In Matthew's Gospel, in his account of the same event, all the other disciples agree and say, yeah, we'll all do the same, Jesus. We'll all be there with you right until whatever the end is. You see, with Jesus still present, it's not quite a crowd with 12 or 13, but it's still quite a group, isn't it? It's still relatively easy to hold true to your faith when there's other people encouraging you, supporting you, cheering you on. But by chapter 18, Jesus is arrested. By chapter 18, the guards have come. Now, if we knew nothing of Jesus and the priorities of his kingdom, the events that happen here when Jesus is arrested, we might think, well, Peter has got it right. If you know the accounts of what happens, as the guards come, Peter gets his sword out and chops off the high priest's servant's ear. Now you think, whoa, you know, go on, Peter, that's really sticking up for your faith. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. Violence is not what the kingdom of God is all about. And Jesus actually says in verse 11 of chapter 18, put your sword away. This is not what standing up for Jesus means. But now we get to crunch time. We get to crunch time in chapter 18. If you've got a Bible, you might just want to turn to these verses. I'll I'll read them. I don't think they'll be appearing on the screen. But it's chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, and then 25 to 27. 
Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty, and brought Peter in. You want one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around the, and the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Then a bit later on in the chapter, we, we sort of flip back to, to Peter in verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Sometimes life presents us with those kind of crunch decisions. Those crunch times when everything is put under pressure. And our faith is put under pressure to such an extent where we are caused to give account of, are we a follower of Jesus or are we not? And pressure does that, doesn't it? Um, The horrific events in, in Ukraine over the last six or seven weeks... They have put world leaders under a huge amount of pressure. I don't know if you saw the news yesterday of Boris um, being in Kyiv visiting Zelensky. Now, um, a lot has been written about Zelensky, but I think most of the sort of admiration for him has come from the fact that he's still there. He is still there. He is still in Kyiv. He is still leading his nation from the front. He hasn't given up. He hasn't walked away. And sometimes, for us as Christians, the most bravest thing we can do is simply to say, whatever else is going on around me, I'm still with Jesus. Peter doesn't do this. Three times, three different people, he gets the opportunity to say, no, I was with Jesus. I am one of his disciples. But he bottles it each time. Each time he says no. So another reflection point. Sorry, I should have put that one up before. Has your faith recently been tested? What happened? No, only you can answer that question. What happened? When the test came, and it might have been a moral test, it might have been something where temptation came in, how did you react? It might have been a conversational test. It might have been a test in terms of actions. But what happened? What happened when our faith was tested? See, it's one thing, isn't it, to declare love for Jesus on a Sunday. But what about the 95% of the time where we're not in church, we're not with other Christians? What about them? What about when our, whatever it is, where we're stood by the fire and somebody asks us that question, how do we react? And so we get this scene of an isolated disciple of Jesus, away from the crowd, away from the fellowship, keeping warm, caving into pressure. I remember a number of years ago um, having a conversation with a friend. I've I've probably mentioned this before, so apologies, but it it was a really useful conversation because we were talking about accountability now, and I'm a real strong believer that as Christians, we need those to whom we are accountable to. Those who we can um, give permission to speak into our lives and say, you know, how are things genuinely? Not just how are things fine, yeah, and then go on. But, you know, people who really ask us those searching questions. But he said, you know, we can do all of that. We can have all those things in place. But ultimately, the only person, other than the Lord, obviously, who knows what's going on in our hearts is me. I'm the only person who knows what's really going on inside of me. You're the only person who really knows what's going on inside of you. You're the only person who can answer those questions about where your faith is really up to, where your discipleship is really up to. 
I think that has always stuck with me because sometimes we, we can think so much about the collective faith that we forget that actually, what do I say to my Jesus, my Savior? What, what is going on deep inside? In the crowd, we can cheer and shout and sing and dance, but when the pressure comes, what we really believe, what we're really made of, really comes to the fore. For Peter, the praises and the exuberance of Palm Sunday cave in at the fireside. What about us? Where's our faith up to? Now, why does this matter? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 10, verses 32 to 33, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. See, Jesus is very clear. Faith has to be lived out, has to be demonstrated. It has to permeate our whole being. I once heard somebody use the analogy of a stick of rock. You know, if you go to Blackpool or somewhere else where you can buy rock and it says the name of the town that goes through it, and you look and you can see it, and wherever you chop it up, the name is still there. You can't get away from Blackpool. There should be a song there somewhere. But, you know, you you chop it up and it's the same all the way through. If we were metaphorically chopped up, does Jesus run right the way through us? Is that who we are, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that going right through us, wherever and whatever pressure we're put unto? You see, belief in Jesus is never just about signing at the bottom of a statement of faith or saying a confession. It's about a lived-out confession, a lived-out confession of faith. And Jesus in verse 32, that acknowledgement that we are Jesus' people when the crunch comes. So as we go into the week ahead, as we have various services, as we think about Good Friday, as we think about the joy of resurrection and all that is to come as followers of Jesus, are we people who are both crowd and crunch Christians? Do we celebrate in the crowd? Because that is fantastic to do. We need to be people who can do that. But are we crunch Christians, those whose faith will stand up under pressure? Let's make it our prayer that this Easter, that the Holy Spirit will strengthen us, encourage us, equip us, so that when our fireside moments comes, we don't say, I don't know you, but we say, yeah, I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. Final reflection point. Does your praise reflect your practice? Does what we do in the crowd reflect what we do in the crunch times?